This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. It's Paul Verschur together with Tony Prescott of the Convergent Science Network podcast of our, the BCBT summer, summer School. And today we're here with our speaker, Sultan Molnar. And Sultan was speaking about the evolution and the development of the neocortex. Um, so Sultan, why, why the neocortex? Why, is that the, why do you think that's the right target to try to understand brain evolution? Mm. So I think this, this issue has been around for quite a while. And in 1664, Thomas Willis started dissecting some brains. And then he noticed that when you compare a sheep brain with a human, the biggest difference was in the cerebral cortex. Brainstem, all the other regions were similar proportions. And um, he noticed that the, the cerebral cortex was much bigger in human in proportion. And also it was more conv convoluted. So again, in 1664, he looked at some patients with uh, cognitive abnormalities, learning disabilities, and... Uh, Epilepsy, and he noticed that the cerebral cortex had extra foldings mm -hmm. and a different shape. So he concluded that it must be the cerebral cortex, which is the substrate of the higher cognitive functions. So mm -hmm. I believe that Willis got it absolutely right. So I think he he uh, put his finger on this. So we have a we have a structure which really increased during uh, evolution and also even minor abnormalities in the cerebral cortex can have a huge, ma major impact on the um, mm -hmm. um, cognitive abilities. Okay, but now, uh, just from a more global perspective, before we really delve into the, the specifics of, of, of your work, you could argue, okay, this is maybe what, what they saw a few hundred years ago, given the tools they had at the time. But brain evolution is not necessarily only focusing on cortex. Cortex doesn't operate in isolation, right? There's also expansion of other structures, like, for instance, basal ganglia, as an example, your thalamus, um, and so on. So um, do you see any critical dependencies there? Or would you, for your money, you would really emphasize neocortex as, as the, the, the key source of what advanced our functionality as humans? Hmm. So I think uh, we, we didn't have enough detailed studies where you, you for instance, scanning uh, lots of different uh, brains in um, 3D, and then you allocate names. So, so, for instance, uh, basal, parts of basal ganglia or uh, cerebellum or hippocampus or uh, different um, thalamic nuclei, you know, higher order or sensory nuclei, and correlate it uh, to cognitive function. And I don't think it has been done mm -hmm. uh, properly. So I think that would be also interesting to to extend these studies, not only to, to cortex or specific um, uh, regions of the cortex, but also to other extracortical areas. We all know that, uh, for instance, cerebellum is responsible for all sorts of other functions, mm -hmm. uh, cognitive, language, motor um, automatisms, etc. So probably the cerebellum had to evolve as well, or, or its connections. Interestingly, if you look at the hippocampus, I don't think that the size varies too much, no? Do you think? 
if you look at different species. In food storing animals, it's bigger. It's really bigger. Yeah. <laughs> they have to remember yeah. where they put the... That's Sometimes right. I wish I, I, my hippocampus would be a bit bigger to find my keys <laughs> or phone. <laughs> right. Um, but now, so, so um, the other thing you emphasized at, at, at the beginning of your talk was sort of the, the four elements of evolution that, that most people got wrong, or at least you pointed to one popular video on, on that, right? And so, so if you would have to characterize brain evolution, what are then the key principles that are driving that? Mm. So uh, the video I showed was uh, really was just helping us to uh, get started on discussions about the principles of evolution. Because if you if you think about it, we are sitting here with um, you know um, eyes in the front with stereo vision. We have the the brain developed as it is, but it's a miracle. Do you think that uh, you could rewind this tape of evolution? a few million years and then you start again do you think we would end up with the same brain shape or sensory networks or motor networks that would be a very interesting test mm -hmm. that how efficient these networks are mm -hmm. no some yes. people believe that mm -hmm. you would probably end up with a similar organism i'm not so sure mm -hmm. why not no. so if you look at the cognitive function or some some um, selected functions of a uh, of a bird, it can be superior to us, no? Mm -hmm. So if they would have had some selective advantages, maybe, you know, they would dominate now, mm. no? Or, mm. I think you could also look at events in history and say, well, if it wasn't for, for instance, mass extinctions caused by, uh, you know, uh, objects colliding with Earth, mm. then mm. Uh, mammals maybe would never have succeeded to the extent mm -hmm. they have. And if you go further back, mm -hmm. Mm. Maybe vertebrates would have been mm. less successful. So yes, or, or we wouldn't be here if you know mm. a dinosaur would have uh, sneezed while our ancestors were copulating. You know, <laughs> it yes. would, would, we would you know, some. So I think ev evolution is—it's a miracle that you know we we are here now, and uh, uh, we have this kind of brain and and this circuitry. But mm. uh, probably we could have evolved into very very different directions, and and that's an interesting task for you guys because you want to look at these computational functions and you look at the brain and and this is one possible solution to yeah, solve that problem but you could probably solve the same problem with many other circuits mm -hmm. no but with sultan there's i think in your also in your presentation you you made a point that that might contradict you because you are also showing that many properties or several properties are highly conserved like for instance the, um, if you look at transcription during development, there are phases in, in this transcription that seem to be highly conserved. Or for instance, the structuring of a, a cortical sheet in terms of a, a supergranular layer and a subgranular layer, right? So given that you have this conservation of certain design principles, you could also argue, well, that would suggest that if I would replay the tape of evolution, from a few few million years mm. back, these conserved properties would still be there, and they'd still be, if you want, forcing a certain form of development. Of course, modulo properties of an environment, but I'm not sure if the end result would have been then radically different. The, the, I think the reason why we conserve developmental mechanisms is because um, they are there already. So we can't start from scratch very radical, you know, um, 
um, changes in how we construct the brain so we can tinker with it a little bit but not you know radically new so just to um, give another example if if you so it's a very general principle that you generate the cerebral cortical cells in an inside first outside last fashion but if you have one gene missing the the relin in expressed in the first layer in the kaharetchus cells and they are not secreted you reverse this inside first outside last uh, gradient you will end up with an outside first inside last reversed order yet this animal is surprisingly normal it does have some motor dysfunction because you know it reels that's where the name is coming from but it's probably due to the cerebellar abnormalities rather than the cortex so what would be interesting to see if you push this guy reeler mutant would um would that cause you know major problems in in cognitive behavior unfortunately in human these are lethal very early on intractable epilepsy mm-hmm. and mental retardation if you if you have the similar mutation but what i'm saying is that if you have radic- if you just change or reverse this um a very conserved prog- program you still have some self organizing principles so they can still wire up they mm-hmm. uh, they can still process some information maybe not as well as as you know the normal brain but um uh, our brain is quite plastic um yeah, well, this, so this is can, also illustrating mm-hmm. one of the i think fundamental uh, properties that you also investigate in your research and and described in great detail is that we all talk about let's say conserved network elements regulatory networks that in in turn become modulated in in different ways to create a certain variability of brains while let's say the the, the core temp the core elements of of the of these systems are actually the same but it's the regulatory networks that are changing and as a result expression patterns change right isn't that isn't that the key underlying feature we're, we're looking at here yes but then all these changes at some point they have to provide you with a advantage uh, during selection mm-hmm. so you set up a, a network and you process information let's say visual information and then you have several streams to process where what and then you suddenly recognize that that um uh, you know chief primate is angry with you so you can run away and you're not selected out uh so you have some advantages if you have a, a sensory or motor system which operates more effectively mm-hmm. so so um over over millions of years you you somehow have to select the developmental programs which is producing the best possible hardware on which you can then develop these circuits no mm-hmm. uh, so this is how i see right i think you also pointed to some of the constraints that are due to evolutionary history i mean the example you gave from rudolf raff's book the shape of life how uh, at an early stage in development organisms seem to converge on a similar pattern of organization uh, which in some sense may be a forced move if you're going to be this kind of multi uh, multi-cell creature you have to go through this Uh, is it the phenotypic stage of what it's mm. called um and maybe there are several of those in evolution i think uh, uh yesterday in Paul's talk he was talking about the cambrian explosion and how all the body plans the, the major body plans emerged then and there've no been no fundamental innovation in body plans since that time it's all been evolution mm. within certain body plans and i guess 
what we know now about these gene networks is that these are very heavily conserved from the very early days of evolution that certain gene networks exist in all these different species vertebrate and invertebrate and are co-opted to do different tasks so that must be a very strong constraint on the parts of design space for brains and bodies that evolution can explore that possibly we're only exploring one very small area of design mm -hmm. space and if you replay the tape and you change some essentially accidental events that have happened maybe we could have gone in another direction or maybe physics just requires uh, that some of these things have to happen the way they have happened mm -hmm. no it also would mean then from that perspective that if you would like to develop a completely different set of animal species you would have to rewind up till the Cambrian explosion because you want it you have to go back to the point prior to just the definition of these body plans because that's the big constraint right perhaps even earlier because the the gene networks even uh, the basic components of the nervous system mm -hmm. are there in right uh, exactly right in, in radial creatures mm -hmm. before the Cambrian yeah. so what do you say about that Sultan mm -hmm. I was thinking in more advanced stages of development when you already have, you know, some kind of telencephalic vesicle and then you have subpartitioning. That's very conserved mm -hmm. in 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 all uh, vertebrates and uh, and mammals. But but if we go a bit further, then uh, that will be the challenge to identify gene networks which will make us different from from others. Mm -hmm. But now you're. In your in your own research, you focus very much on cortex, and then uh, what you emphasized very much is also this radial expansion of cortex, um, or the growth of cortex, and the processes that would drive that, as compared to, for instance, a lizard or avian brain. Right. So, what are the most? If we just try to turn this the question we're discussing now, in in a, a bit more data oriented version, right? So. Um, what are the most obvious differences between a, such a lizard avian brain and the mammalian brain in which we will find this cortical sheet that you really study? So uh, I often have discussion with uh, Barbara Finley about this, and um, she is uh, telling me that if you plot a brain size and um, other parameters, uh, we have absolutely just the right size of brain as, as, as total. So, so and um, other species would fit in just as well, birds included. Where we disagree is that within that scheme, I think the relative proportions of, of our brain, they change radically. So the sauropsids, as I showed uh, you, the, decided to enlarge different part of the brain than from us. We decided to, well, actually, we did not decide anything. We were selected out <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. uh, because it was advantageous to have the, the enlarged cortex. And uh, the dorsoventricular ridge is uh, not, um, or the derivatives of these, of these structures, whatever they are, you know, lateral amygdala, endopiriform nucleus, or claustrum, they are not major features of our brain. So we decided to enlarge the cortex. Now, the, uh, the sauropsids decided to enlarge that bowl of cells, and they have huge circuits, as we discussed uh, during the talk, uh, inside that bowl. And some of them, they look very similar to the mammalian circuits. And um, after the talk, I think Tony's comment was a very good one. So what is the selective advantage to build the 
cortex like we do, mammals. And I think uh, the major advantage is that you can produce some embryonic transient circuits and the cortex is um, receiving and delivering information at the time when the elements are still constructed and still added to it. So I think this is where I see a huge advantage in having the kind of structure we have. So we have a, a transient platform below the cerebral cortex and things begin to line up uh, just as we generate other cortical cells. So I think maybe this is a big, big, big advantage. I don't think we can push us. that point too far. I mean, if uh, uh, at, at an early stage in hominid evolution, our line had been wiped out, it might be today crows that are recording interviews <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, about why their brains are better uh, than those mammals that just scurry around. So, um, and I think, and, and it's interesting that birds and mammals have uh, both have enlarged forebrains, but they've enlarged in different ways. And I, I, from my understanding, the, the big debate is, you know, how, how are those similar and different? And what I got from your talk today actually was a very interesting idea that maybe there's more flexibility in the evolution of the brain than we realize because starting from very different underlying architectures, the avian uh, forebrain and the mammalian forebrain, although they look very different, are per perhaps converging on something similar in terms of functional architecture. And is that a fair reading or am I exaggerating your position? Very much so, because um, um, we talked specifically about these thalamic recipient cells, um, and these have uh, very similar uh, transcriptomic networks, and we, show, we have um, demonstrated that you have a significant overlap between these networks in layer four and also in the nidopallium in the, the birds, although they come from different parts. Now, I think thalamic influence uh, can elicit all sorts of differentiation on these cells. So that would be already very interesting to, to see. Is it activity? Is it the pattern of activity? Or you might even deliver some um, amino acids maybe. Uh, transneuronally from the retina or so uh, all these should be explored a bit further so there is um, an influence from the thalamic fibers and we don't know what it is exactly that uh, you have these convergent networks and this is just the first step <laughs> of the circuit so we don't even know where to take the next step no <laughs> uh, um, in the avian and the mammalian brain but now in the comparison of these four brains can you say something about the kinds of cell types you find in mam mm -hmm. mammals and, and and birds and how s similar, dissimilar these are? So all our work I presented um, today was on regions, dissected pieces of our brain, not single cells. Mm -hmm. So um, I completely agree. What would be really good is to go into in single cell level and then um, cluster these cells according to the expressed gene, and that's one way of identifying cell types, and relate this to somatodendritic morphology, physiological properties, connectivity. And then you come up with um, <coughs> uh, ideas whether these evolved together or separately. Or, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, because what, what you mentioned in, in this discussion is, in some sense, there was this idea of Harvey Carton expressed in the 60s about the equivalent, the equivalent circuit hypothesis. And, and you have tried to target that by, by doing, if you want, gene fingerprinting 
of of these areas to allow you to establish whether we, we look at homologs or not but between bird and, and mammals um, so <coughs> in European at that at that genetic with this genetic if you look at these genetic markers how similar dissimilar do these structures look would you declare them being homologs so that Harvey Carton had it right or, or do you think it's a bit more complicated story so as uh, as I mentioned, if you compare um, gene expression patterns uh, between these structures, let's say hippocampus and the striatum, you you notice that you have huge overlaps in gene expression pattern, and also these networks have common elements. Uh, if you then and also I mentioned oligodendrocytes, and then um, um, the next one was very interestingly layer four, and parts of the nidopalium where you have the thalamic targeting. Now, just because they have similar gene expression pattern, and just in the light of that particular information, you can't say whether they are homologous or not, because we developmental uh, biologists, we like to talk about homology when they come from the same uh, piece of the neuroepithelium, and it's not the case. We know for sure. So this is more of a convergent gene expression pattern. Now, you could argue that, okay, so why do I say that the hippocampus is then homologous and the striatum is homologous but not the layer for it? So you're absolutely right. Just by gene expression pattern, I can't say that that piece of neuroepithelium is, uh, is uh, homologous to the avian uh, hippocampus. It's more of uh, the origin, lineage, uh, clonal relationship, and the gene expression uh, prove that that they are similar, but just by gene expression, you can't really say that these mm -hmm. are homologous. And but, um, but your definition of homology uh, mm -hmm. seems to be a little bit biased there, because when we talk about homology, what we're really trying to get at surely is that a common ancestor had a structure, and that these two uh, species we're looking at now have inherited that structure and adapted it from that common ancestor. That, that's what we really want to mean by homology. And then your target. My definition is a developmental but, rather than ah, evolutionary. Okay. So, so that is the the the, the problem, mm -hmm. because uh, you know you I can't um, uh, use that kind of definition in developmental terms because they are meaningless. Yeah, but but for for us. So, you, you, homology to you isn't an evolutionary concept at all. It's a. It's uh, so uh, developmentally. If you talk about homology of of structures, it means that the arrived from the same or uh, progenitors from the same part mm -hmm. relative position right. of the tissue but and that's not the case for these structures if you talk about that yes you had a thalamic recipient cell group um, which was uh, uh, targeted by thalamic fibers and they then initiated some sensory experience yes they uh, perform similar function but would that be <laughs> Homology. No, but let, let's turn it around. Mm -hmm. So, um, in your in your definition, which is a more developmental of homology, aren't you actually also importing a Trojan horse? Because you you said yourself that this nineteenth century idea of of development recapitulating evolution was. Um, not not fully correct because you see divergence in in development that you will not see if you recapitulate evolution. But now, if you insist that homology must be defined as originating in the same part 
of the neural tube, then you seem to imply that development does recapitulate phylogeny. Um, no, I don't imply that. But, uh, but um, I think uh, this is just not the case, that these two cell groups are derived from the same part of the neuroepithelium and they were re-juggled. Yeah, but you so, cannot say that. Why not? I, I have all the lineage information. Uh -huh. I can track the cells. I know where they come from, where they go, and they are completely separate. Now, let, let me clarify. <laughs> of course, you have freedom of speech. So you can say whatever you want. Okay, In that sense, we will respect whatever you say. But the point is that if you compare a bird, developing bird brain and a developing mammalian brain, the timing of that developmental process will be rather different. So for instance, the neuroepithelium from which you have your, in which you will find your progenitor cells will might start to divide at a much later stage in the mammalian brain than it does in the avian brain. And as a result, the actual layout of the neuroepithelium will have a very different shape. So to just then use that location at that point in time as your benchmark, it's a sure road to failure because the developmental program is radically different. Yes, but um, uh, that's exactly what I'm saying, that um, if you follow the entire course of development, so you look at these different proportions of the mammalian or um, avian or reptilian uh, telencephalic physicals, if you look at all the segments, all the neurogenesis, all the migration, all the clones, uh, you get from these and you trace the migration of these cells. I know that this is not just uh, stage dependent. They never, ever arrive from the same. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> so basically, exactly. that's why I'm so radically against what you are saying, that, that you know, oh, it might be just a timing effect. And um, if you look at different time, yes, they were coming from there. No. <laughs> There's no evidence whatsoever but, that but they you... ever... Uh, uh, arrive from uh, the same uh, progenitors and they just have a different migration. So they come from in very different relative positions. We have now markers, uh, some basic uh, homobox uh, uh, genes which mark some of the segments of these and also we have some morphological features which help us and they are coming from different uh, parts. And, and the avian brain adopted a strategy to amplify neurogenesis and change the migration of those regions, whereas the mammalian is radically mm -hmm. different. And that's why I think that's not a big problem. You know, I don't care whether they are homologous or not. Uh, uh, we now sorted that they are not. Well, uh, you're making a strong yeah. claim here, which uh, <laughs> goes back. I think you were talking to about uh, Haeckel and his idea yeah. that uh, very early on in embryology, we all look the same. Mm -hmm. And you're saying that there's a, a starting point in embryology where every uh, every vertebrate has essentially the same embryo. And from that point, you can track what happens to each bit of the embryo as it moves mm -hmm. around into what the What I'm body. saying is that but, the telencephalic vesicle... So let's say, right, let's say right. I, I, I uh, give you two or three sections uh, matching stages from a turtle, chick, or, or a mouse, and I stain yeah. it with um, the same four representative uh, homobox genes and I uh, cover slip it, give you a microscope, and then I ask you, okay, tell me which one is which. You couldn't be able to yeah, tell but, me but, but at, a, I, at, a, at an early stage. So in that sense, yes, Eckel was right, that these early stages are highly conserved. 
But, you know, they don't go through the, you know, later, or especially the adult developmental stages to go to the next stage. That's where we disagree. But it seems a bit circular here because you're now <laughs> using gene expression to say these are, uh, this is my standard, this is the, the common pattern across all these creatures, and I know it because of the gene expression. Mm -hmm. But you but can use, saying, Tony, you hey, can use many other things. Okay. Gene expression is just one, but uh, people usually accept... Um, gene expression quite well because you know these are highly conserved you never have a hoax gene you know you know uh, changing its gene expression at these early stages yeah, but, so but you're, you're so now saying when we come to the forebrain mm -hmm. that uh, gene expression seems to suggest that part of the dorsal ventricular ridge is uh, similarly organized to neocortex but no, 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 you don't no, want no. to accept homology so, so no 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 the, the gene forebrain. expression not supporting that so in fact, so if you look at these early, it's, these are very early studies from uh, several groups, but basically if you look at these, there, um, you have a couple of key genes which um, mark a cortex, for instance. So that's the EMX um, uh, genes. Then you go to the, um, uh, this intermediate part, that's the PAC6, and then you have the DLX genes and so on. So the order of these and the segments, so they are highly conserved early on. I'm not saying that's the only criteria. You can use many other things probably. But um, this is clearly indicating that unfortunately DVR and cortex, developmentally, they come from different uh, uh, parts of the brain. But they converge yeah. to have the uh, same yeah. pattern of gene expression. In exactly. But, yeah. Okay. So finally, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But and and that was uh, that was a, a, a very interesting, and that's why uh, I mentioned it in the talk. That that's why it was the thorniest question, the thorniest problem of uh, of uh, evolutionary biology, because the gene expression, hodology, and uh, physiological properties they all supported. That you know they are homologous, but the mm. developmental data is clear that they are well, not. I mean, but we, this is just we as need interesting. To be more flexible about what we mean by homology. <laughs> yeah, because, I think that's a problem. Because you're <laughs> saying that at an early stage in the embryo, uh, all embryos are essentially the same, and then you can see what goes on from there. Mm -hmm. But what we're saying now is that in the adult, although these have a very different developmental path, they've converged on a very similar structure, at least in terms of gene expression. So you could say that in the adult. They are homologous. Mm -hmm. in right, but totally in my talk I mentioned sense. that yeah. uh, when I um, uh, use similar terms, then I was warned by others, including uh, Neuvenhaus, who is a, um, an expert in this, that he said you should stick to one meaning of homology, you know, <laughs> and developmentally they are not. So mm -hmm. that, no, Okay, so Tony, I'm mm -hmm. afraid we will not convince Sultan of this uh, <laughs> during this podcast, but, but we will, we well, will it, twist it, his it, arm afterwards. It took 60 years for Harvey, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> yeah. No, but look, mm -hmm. so, so we just, okay, so homology, at least I think this discussion makes clear, it's actually not completely resolved what we mean with it exactly. There is, there is some controversy around its definition, mm -hmm. dependent on the field in which it is used. Exactly, especially right? your field has a problem because we, we know exactly. <laughs> okay, now this is, this is exactly what we're talking to you, Zoltan, because you know and we don't, you see. <laughs> no, but, but the point is that then if you talk about this, um, uh, this sort of equivalent circuit hypothesis now, okay, so the, the idea would be that functionally this this avian forebrain compared to a mammalian forebrain functionally might do similar things. It might show even, as you showed, right, similar response properties to visual stimuli. 
But in terms of its internal organization, it's different because in, in terms of uh, its layering, it's different. So, so how, how should I interpret that? Because I, I, so in, in your talk, you showed that <laughs> in cortex, mammalian cortex, you would exploit more the six layers of a mammalian cortex to perform mm -hmm. certain operations. While in this avian brain, you might use a more, at least in, in, in this, this conceptualization also of Harvey Carton and others, a more, let's say, a sequential operation between different subzones, as opposed to exploiting parallel processing within layers. So how, how should I see then exactly this equivalence between these, these two anatomical structures? So uh, Harvey in the 60s suggested that um, if we just look at these, these circuits, the thalamic targeting, so the cells uh, are in um, different uh, arrangements. Um, so the thalamic targeting cells are equivalent, let's say. Then the next step is uh, the supragranular layers, um, uh, that would be the next step, so they are located somewhere else. And then the final output layer is in the dorsal part of the dorsal cortex, uh, mm -hmm. hyperpolyum, in, in uh, sauropsids, and then you would have that in layer 5 and 6 in the um, mammalian cortex. So if uh, I mentioned two studies, one from uh, Suzuki, um, from Hirata's lab, and another one from Jennifer Dugas Ford from Rexdale's lab. Uh, when they looked at a handful of gene expressions uh, with the most uh, interesting markers for the uh, supragranular and infragranular cells, and that further com confirmed mm -hmm. this kind of segregation of circuit elements, mm -hmm. and they supported Harvey's original mm -hmm. idea. But now explain to me, there's something I don't understand. Um, if you look at the mammalian cortex, you would have a continuous interaction throughout with thalamus, for instance, right? But now in this avian solution, you would only have a subzone that is sensitive to thalamic input. So is, do you see a patchy projection from a thalamus into that, that area? Because that's what it would imply. So I am not an expert, unfortunately, in the, in the thalamic projections in sauropsids, but uh, they do have a parallel processing. No, they have the, um, so you have the collicular input is going to the nucleus rotundus and then the nucleus rotundus will project then to a different part of the, the brain, to the dorsal cortex rather mm -hmm. than to DVR. Mm -hmm. Whereas the uh, specific sensory nuclei, they go straight to the DVR. So in mammals, of course, you have uh, the first order and higher order uh, thalamic nuclei, and mm -hmm. they have completely different layer-specific innovation. The first order target layer, of, mostly layer four, although they go to all other layers, whereas the <clears throat> higher order thalamic nuclei, they project mostly to layer one. Mm -hmm. And also the output from the cortex itself is different to these different thalamic nuclei. So uh, from the primary sensory areas, you have layer six projection back to these, whereas uh, from the, to the higher order thalamic nuclei, most of the uh, uh, cortical input is coming from layer five. So if you have a little bit of mismatch between six and five, then you can actually communicate cortico-cortical information via the thalamus. Mm -hmm. And that's an, an idea which regularly and Murray Sherman developed, and it's very powerful. Uh, and that's also indicating that you have to coordinate th uh, cortical 
a development and evolution with the thalamus. Mm -hmm. And this is not really followed up in comparative sense. Mm -hmm. So that would be interesting to see. Okay. Um, and and I think that's what you asked. Yeah, uh, that's a yeah. test of mm -hmm. hypothesis yeah. then, right? There would be yeah. a consequence of yeah. this mm -hmm. equivalent hypothesis. Okay. But you're suggesting uh, in the talk that uh, DVR neurons were having some very similar functional properties to, for instance, mm -hmm. visual cortex. Neurons. Electrophysiologically, if you yeah. Paul Menger recorded from the iguana dorsoventricular ridge, and it was interesting to see that the receptive field properties were very similar to mammalian uh, primary visual cortex and also, you had multiple representations within the DVR with mirror reversals, which is also very interesting. So even if it's a nuclear representation, you still have multiple, which is also a feature of cortical visual fields. You, know, you have um, dozens of visual areas with multiple uh, representations. And is there something like a, a DVR microcircuit, which might be similar to a cortical microcircuit? Yeah, really pushing me. <laughs> but, but according to Harvey Carton, yes. So right. he, he can see lots of lots of similar elements. And I right. think uh, this would be a really good time to, to tackle this uh, in more detail, mm -hmm. I think, this comparative uh, uh, circuit analysis. Hmm. Yeah. But now the other thing, in this comparison between a mammalian brain and, and an avian brain, you also looked at the development of these structures, right? And the, and the point you were making is that the migration patterns during development to build a cortex or to build this DVR structure are actually rather different. But so what, what are the similarities between these migration patterns of, of the cells that form these areas and what are the main differences? So I don't know too much about this um, corner of the brain, you know, where the DVR is coming from. I told you that this is one of the most complex regions. So you mm -hmm. have a lateral right. stream of migrations and then um, 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 some authors like uh, Luis Puelas, who is an expert here, is uh, suggesting that as a field, they produce uh, the claustrum, um, amygdala, and endopiriform uh, mm -hmm. nucleus, uh, these regions as a field, and then they differentiate further from this stream. Whereas in, in sauropsids, you developed some developmental um, uh, migration patterns or, or lack of it, and then these cells uh, protrude into the lateral ventricle and they form this uh, dorsoventricular ridge. Unfortunately, I don't know too much about the subdivision with this uh, dorsoventricular mm -hmm. ridge, but that could be also very interesting to see uh, how they differentiate. Mm -hmm. So this is a key uh, feature which is different. Now, the dorsal cortex, as we discussed and argued, uh, it's coming from a different part of the neuroepithelium, <laughs> and it has an inside-first-outside-last mm -hmm. uh, pattern. And um, and uh, we also mentioned uh, reeling expression, which is actually setting up this major uh, polarity. So the mm -hmm. inside first, outside last. But now you mm -hmm. did mention that if you take a mammal of which you knock out PEC-5. PEC-6, yeah. Or PEC-6, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, then you, you get, in the end, a brain that seems to follow this idea of a, of a ball of cells being a forebrain. So, so would you then see that as an indication that to go from DVR to a cortex really depends on, on a single regulatory gene? 
So in the talk I mentioned the study which was done in collaboration with Anastasia Stoikova in Göttingen and what we noticed was that if you um, in the in the PAC 6 uh, knockout you will have problems with this lateral stream of migration and differentiation especially these areas um, like uh, lateral amygdala, claustrum, endoperiform nucleus, and you will begin to see a ball of cells protruding into the lateral ventricle, very similar to what you see in the turtle. Now, uh, we also discussed during the talk that, unfortunately, PAC6 is a master gene, so it's involved in lots of different other developmental steps, including cortical development. But nevertheless, this this clearly uh, indicates that, you know, just by changing... Um, uh, some aspects of uh, mammalian development, you can actually regress <laughs> to to uh, producing mm-hmm. this bowl of cells. So I also emphasized during the talk that it's probably not the um, main... Um, I'm not saying that, you know, PAC-6 was responsible for this. Uh, it could have been. But uh, I think there was a very interesting rearrangement of that zone mm-hmm. during... Um, uh, evolution and it's still reflected now in these basic developmental mm-hmm. patterns in in mammals. In the PAC six knockout uh, mice, what's the behavioral signature of that? Uh, if you knock out in all these structures, it's death. Okay. <laughs> so if you have conditional knockout, mm-hmm. you can have cortex specific, or you can have. Um, um, other conditional knockout, then it's uh, a bit more subtle. And what is also interesting is if you change uh, pexic expression at these uh, zones, then uh, this intermediate island of cells is blocking off the thalamic uh, fibers of entering to the cortex. So that's why I was so interested in this mutant, because uh, you have a thalamic phenotype. Mm-hmm. They can't make it through them, this, this part. Right. So is it the case that the dorsal cortex in in turtles is a true homologue in the sense that you want to use that word of the neocortex in mammals? So the same piece of neuroepithelium is giving rise to the dorsal cortex in turtle and to the dorsal cortex of mammal, but the mammalian uh, dorsal cortex, that part of the neuroepithelium was turbocharged and it's now producing lots of progenitors and it has an enhanced neurogenic um, uh, capacity. And this may be because of, of genes, including PAC6 perhaps, which are involved in suppressing the development of the dorsal ventricular ridge, which otherwise would take on this perhaps higher cognitive function. And, and it, is it the case that in birds they have this dorsal cortex but it hasn't really changed much from the turtle. That's a very interesting thought, that you, to be able to promote the dorsal cortex, you have to suppress the DVR, (laughs) (laughs) which is very interesting. Um, I always thought about it that you just cranked up the neurogenesis in the dorsal cortex, and then you start of um, um, sensory modalities and other motor functions were colonizing it. But your suggestion that you also have to suppress the other, then it's, it's, it's an interesting one. It is a possibility. Mm-hmm. But um, whatever happened, um, what I wanted to say at the, the uh, middle or last part of my talk is that uh, that part of neuroepithelium started to generate more neurons. Uh, the pro- developmental program introduced more intermediate progenitors and probably some of these 
intermediate progenitors, they are also amenable to regulation, increasing the potential that you produce neurons according to the need uh, of the dorsal cortex. Mm -hmm. So it's it's another aspect of self-regulation. So it's always, um, unfortunately, if you block thalamic input at these early stages of development, you get the same, very similar uh, cortical uh, numbers. Mm -hmm. So it's not the thalamic input. It's probably there's an in, innate, inherent program which is producing these cell types, and the thalamic input is probably just modulating it. But now can you tell me, what, what do we know really about PEC6? What's it regulating exactly? I mean, it's hundreds of genes, okay. so it's it's very right. so. So when you ask a development and you're okay, tell me how this transcription factor is is acting. So what what they will usually say is okay, let's get um, some of these uh, transcription factors, produce some antibodies against them, do some uh, chromatin immunoprecipitation when you. Uh, precipitate these DNA parts, smaller fragments, then you pull out the parts which were specifically binding by this transcription factor, you sequence them or you identify the genes where they bind, you have hundreds of binding partners, and then you pick one of them, and if you're lucky, yeah, that's important. So this is how the mm -hmm. field is, is looking at. PAC6 is, has been studied by many, many outstanding groups, and uh, they are slowly beginning to understand um, how it's regulating mm -hmm. uh, um, eye development, brain development, mm -hmm. But another interpretation, which, which relates to some other data you showed, is that actually, you know, the, the, there's a very specific temporal patterning in the migration of these cells, and also the construction of their interconnectivity, and that that in itself can form barriers for the migration of other cells. Right, so to actually go from a ball of cells more to in the center to a sheet at the outside, you must cross these kinds of barriers. So, could the key regulatory switch be the one that's like a traffic cop helping you to regulate the crossing of of, of multiple migrating populations of cells through these kinds of bottlenecks? Do you see that as a possible mechanism, or or is that irrelevant? So it's a very interesting. Um uh, question you just uh, rose. So, so this uh, corner of the brain where you have the either the dorsoventricular region, sauropsids, or you have this lateral stream in mammals, it's interesting that you have to clear that part by the time thalamic projections pass that region and also corticofugals. Without clearing that in time, delaying the development or, or altering that stream, we'll have serious uh, um, implications on the thalamocortical targeting. So <clears throat> lots of thalamic fibers fail to pass through that region if you have any um, migration problems of these cells out mm -hmm. of the way. So um, Sonia Garel in um, Echo Normal in, in, in Paris uh, looked at some of these evolutionary steps and, and basically she identified uh, some of the factors which uh, would help uh, the thalamic fibers to go through the region, um, and uh, there are some evolutionarily conserved mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So, so probably it's not a, um, a surprise why we have uh, all these development of phenotypes in that particular region, because it's so vulnerable for timing and migration and uh, cell patterning. Mm -hmm. So, but then, so the. Um you mentioned that the neocortex becomes turbocharged in mammals, 
but uh, it's it, a hypothesis. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't happen just all in one shot, does it? There's stages to that. So you mentioned that if you look at an animal like Monodelphus domestica, which seems to be similar to uh, in some ways to an early mammal, uh, the density of neurons and the organization of the neocortex is, is much less than in a mouse, mm. say. So. Um, and it, it's got something like the sixth layer cortex, but there are changes then that happen between that and later mammals, which make it even more turbocharged. I mean, is that right? Do you see two stages here in, in, in neocortex or more than two, sta two stages in the way that neocortex has evolved? Tony, this is exactly how I <laughs> imagine this. That So um, I think we could argue whether these intermediate progenitors are specifically mammalian or not. Um, um, if you talk to uh, George Streeter, he would argue that these intermediate progenitors are present in larger avian brains and uh, they are responsible for producing more cells in the, the avian brain. Where um, we slightly disagree is that whether in the hyperpolyum so, uh, of the, so the, the dorsal cortex equivalent part of the neuroepithelium, whether you have these um, um, intermediate progenitors in large number in birds um, or not. I would like to suggest that you don't have many of these there. Um, but you might have some in the subpolyum. And um, I think so, so in all mammals studied so far, including Monodelphis and Wallaby, as I showed you, we can see these intermediate progenitor cells, but much later in development. And I also showed you the cell counts for Monodelphis, and it's roughly half of the mouse in, in a unit column area of the, of the brain. And um, I also showed you that the uh, onset of these um, obventricular proliferative profiles in the subventricular zone, they are delayed uh, considerably, but you still have them. We have a little bit of a, uh, argument whether these are neurogenic divisions or not, or they are already gliogenic with Antonello Malamaggi in the Trieste, but we all agree that eventually you will have some divisions there and um, they uh, begin to produce neurons or glia. In my opinion, they start producing a little bit of, of neurons as well. But we have to do some clonal analysis to, to be sure of that. Now, if you look at then the elaboration of these subventricular zones, Henry Kennedy will be speaking here soon. Mm -hmm. He will probably touch on this, that if you look at the primate uh, ventricular, subventricular zone, you have several subzones with lots of other progenitors, and they start to produce... Um, 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 you know, there is an explosion in numbers. And uh, these progenitors, uh, they produce um, uh, neurons in, in many, many different levels. And I've, sh I've shown you these interkinetic nuclear migration profiles, so they have to descend and uh, divide there. These intermediate progenitors, you, they either don't have to move, like the TBR2 positive, or they move to the opposite direction. So you have three... Uh, additional floors where you can produce neurons and suddenly you can have this explosion of neuronal production um, in the brain which is necessary I think to, to produce and uh, coupled with this you have a stable platform in the subplate where you can start already building the connections I think we have a very powerful uh, developmental program 
which can not only continue to produce neurons, but already start wiring them up. So just to be clear, mm. the um, monodelphus has all the same progenitor types, or is it missing some types that other mammals have? The proportions are different. Right. But uh, in my opinion, the, you have the radioglia uh, progenitor, and you also have the, uh, the uh, TBR2-positive intermediate progenitors. But these progenitors are in, la in smaller number. Whether they have these outer radioglia progenitors or not in very low numbers, I don't know. Even in mouse, it's, it's less than 5% of the progenitors, which is actually a very, a very prominent feature of the primate brain. Henry will mm -hmm. show this. But now with these intermediate progenitors, does it mean some sort of modular construction process during development? That means that you first can produce a small set of layers, if you want, of a cortical sheet, but then you have to inject an intermediate progenitor on top of those layers to build your next layer, etc. Is that how you see it? Uh, uh, I see it more of an amplification machinery. Mm -hmm. uh, so I uh, believe that these intermediate progenitors, they contribute to all layers, as I showed you with this Navneet uh, Vashistha uh, and um, uh, Fernando Garcia Moreno paper, uh, where they trace the origin of these cells. And I think they concluded we concluded that 25 to 50% of the uh, mouse brain cells come through these progenitors. Mm -hmm. So, but I don't think similar lineage analysis has been done for the outer radioglia cells, and that will be very important, and also for the short radioglia progenitors. So I think this has to be done in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this lineage analysis you did by actually... Um, tagging different cells with um, different colors in the end, right? And then you could see, okay, which which cells are clones of which progenitor cells. So, um, but what did you, what were the key observations in that experiment, which looks pretty amazing, actually? So we only have these um, experiments for the TBR2-positive intermediate progenitors because uh, we had access to these TBR2-CRE uh, progenitors, mm -hmm. and then we use the clone method on the top of that. And what we could now tell is what is the average clone size, you know, how many cells you have, uh, how many times they divide, you know, uh, we are now sure that they divide at least two, three, maybe even four times. Um, uh, but we haven't got the data for all the other progenitors. And you will hear uh, from Henry um, in about two days about their observations where they imaged um, cortical progenitors in the primate brain in vitro, and then they followed these cells to the cortex, and then they identified the, the phenotype and laminar position of these cells. So they could have some snapshots. They could put these primate brain slices in the dish for, in fact, for weeks, and then they followed them, how they divide, where they migrate. And what is interesting, and what, what uh, Henry and uh, Colette uh, are proposing, that these progenitors, they transform into one another in different directions. If this is the case, then things will become very, very complicated. Mm -hmm. Because if you can transfer a TBR2-positive intermediate progenitor back into a radioglia, mm -hmm. or you can transfer them to an outer radioglia and vice versa, then things will become very, very complicated mm -hmm. indeed. Yeah. 
But do you find that a reasonable interpretation? Isn't it? It is. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is. But I I haven't done any time lapse mm -hmm. uh, studies okay. as such. Right. Tony, you have. Um... Okay, so. Um, I mean, somebody has to listen to this podcast, and probably they are all asleep by now. So. <laughs> no, 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 we're just going to do the best <laughs> bit. <laughs> no, we're recording. So you, you, you in the end, summarized, you summarized your, your, the main results you're presenting in terms of innovation, conservation, and convergence. Yeah. So what did you mean by that? So I have to come back to this topic where we spent quite a bit of time in discussing that um what um so after all this transcriptomic analysis with um Grant Belgard and Chris Ponting, combining it with the cell lineage and uh, clonal analysis and um, gene expression um, i mean earlier gene expression developmental gene expression, I had to realize that some parts of the brain where you have different developmental origin, they can adopt similar gene expression, so that's why what I mean by um you know, they converged mm -hmm. to uh, that particular. In the striatum hippocampus oligodendrocytes, uh, we emphasize the conservation of gene expression networks. Mm -hmm. And what was the third? Innovation. <laughs> innovation. Innovation. So uh, when you um, compare brain regions, that's, that's the interesting bit. What is new? What are the mechanisms which uh, you know you don't see in other species, mm -hmm. and especially during development, which we didn't do? Uh, that would be very interesting to see. Mm -hmm. What is it? How did we get this turbocharge mm -hmm. <laughs> of the cortex? I think that would be a very interesting. Right. So, Sultan, you're in this business now for for a while. You you have gained this incredible insight in, in the development of the neocortex, um, even though we still have to explain to you about homology, but that's not a discussion. Um, but now, given your experience in neuroscience and the study of the brain, right? if we would like to follow in your footsteps, what's, what's Zoltan's law that we should adhere to? To Zoltan's law of the study of the brain. So, um, so here on this course, I um, emphasized um, uh, the comparative evolutionary developmental aspect, but um, most of the, the the work I'm doing is understanding how mammalian cortical circuits are put together. And um, I did not really talk about this part, but I'm uh, very interested in this early transient platform, which is below the developing uh, cortex, the subplate neurons. So these are largely transient uh, cells. They are the earliest generated cells in our brain. If you look at subplate in the primate brain, Andrew will probably show you some, it's bigger than the cortical plate early on during development. And then these cells, after they set up all the connectivity, integrate into the intra and extracortical circuits, then they will disappear. And you only have a couple of scattered uh, interstitial white matter cells left over. They are cleared away, and then the final product, the cortex, will remain there. So I'm fascinated with the association of these scattered residual cells to cognitive abnormalities. So it's like when you have sloppy builders, they leave some of the building, the scaffold, mm -hmm. behind when the adult structure is finished, and probably they haven't done a good job anyway. 
uh, in the adult structure because they left the scaffold inside and then mm-hmm. they can't remove it. So I'm fascinated with these and that's why I'm so interested in development because I I agree with Willis from 1664 that many of the cognitive disorders, they are brain developmental mm-hmm. abnormalities and they are related to cortex and these transient scaffold cells or the remnants of them, they uh, tell us quite a bit um, about how the brain is is constructed. And simply because these are the earliest generated cells, to understand them and understand their evolutionary origin, that's why I do quite a bit of comparative Mm -hmm. work. So um, although it's a bit more clinically driven, what I want to emphasize is that sometimes it's good to just step back and look at the the bigger overall picture. And uh, and uh, although it's a simplification, but this subplate is maybe the reptilian framework of our mammalian brain. Mm-hmm. And then if we're going to meet up with you in, in Oxford four years from now, um, and we're going to remind you of this discussion of today, and we're going to tell you, look, four years ago you made this prediction, and now we're going to go check and see if it came out. What's this one prediction you would like to to make you feel most passionate about today in your own work? So if in the next four years I could um, uh, monitor and modulate these transient scaffold cells in the mammalian brain and show that by modulating their function could alter cognitive development, um, then I would be very, very happy. Mm-hmm. And if I could extend it some neuropathology, so... Uh, histology or even imaging. Now we have seven Tesla machines. And if I could show that abnormal uh, cortical development will have an impact on these subplate cells or vice versa, and then I would be very happy. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Sultan mm-hmm. Molnar, mm-hmm. thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you, Paul, and thank you, Tony. Thank The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomedics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.